Scripture reading this morning is 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Where we will see, among other things, that sometimes music is intended to make us more receptive to God's Word. Second King, uh, sorry, yeah, Second Kings chapter 3. <clears throat> we'll read the entire chapter. Listen, this is God's Word. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin he did not depart from it. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of Yahweh here through whom we may inquire of Yahweh? And one of the king's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of Yahweh is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is Yahweh who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played... The hand of Yahweh came upon him, and he said, Thus says Yahweh, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says Yahweh, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of Yahweh. He will also give you the Moabites into your hand, 
And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood that kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went, and they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kirharaseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 <clears throat> swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. We have all seen the fire alarm or the fire extinguisher on the wall with the words, in case of emergency, break glass. There's no need to use either of them unless there's an actual fire. In fact, their use, if there is not a fire, is discouraged, if not illegal. <clears throat> but if we're honest with ourselves, we realize we sometimes view God in this way. He's handy to have around, maybe even life-saving in the event of an emergency. But when life is going swimmingly, or when I take or assess my own resources and feel like I have more than I need to accomplish what I'm trying to do, God can be far from our minds. His word revealing His will for His people, our Bibles gather dust. Our words to Him, our prayers, are piddling and perfunctory. But the moment hardship happens or suffering comes, we break the glass and we call out to God. Sometimes in the form of a complaint, sometimes in the form of a lament, but often a cry for help. And if that's ever been your experience, you can relate to at least some parts of the story in 2 Kings chapter 3, and we understand, we'll see in a bit, this is a, a rather strange story, at least it ends in a rather strange way. 
We have been tracking, if you're just visiting with us today, we've been tracking the life of uh, Elijah through 1 Kings and, of course, the lives of the kings uh, through the book. And we've been tracking the life of Elijah, now a transition to the life of Elisha, prophets of God, bringing the word of God to the people of God. Elisha comes to bring God's word, describing God's will to God's people, and he lives through the reigns of several kings who were set up to rule over God's people for God's sake and to lead them in obedience and worship and devotion to the God who saved them. Well, last time we saw in chapter 2, 2 Kings 2, Elisha's identity was confirmed. After Elijah ascended into heaven, uh, Elisha picks up his mantle. He crosses the Jordan miraculously. His identity as a prophet of God is affirmed. And his second act is an act of blessing and healing the waters of Jericho. His third act is an act of cursing, resulting in 42 boys being mauled by two bears. Well, now we pick up at chapter 3, and all of a sudden we're introduced to two kings reigning. And we realize the story of Elisha's ascension into heaven and Elijah's ascension into heaven. Elisha's picking up his mantle was kind of an interruption in the stories of the kings of both Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Which means as we come into 2 Kings 3, partly because it's been so long since we've been in the book of Kings, and because we come to these particularly named kings now, we need to reorient ourselves, or sort of resituate, if you will, uh, so that we can understand at least this story a little better and lay some groundwork for the stories to come. So first, just a little background with the, that we're invited to see in just the first opening verses of the chapter. And I have been reminding you, and will continue to do so, that part of the challenges of reading and understanding and appropriating the books of Kings is that the storyline uh, essentially describes, as advertised, the lives of kings, always telling us how well or how not well they, they served in leading the people before God. But that storyline toggles back and forth between the south and and the north. There's this steady decline of the people of God, once pious and prosperous under the reigns of kings David and then Solomon, but now divided into two nations. Israel to the north, its capital is Samaria. Judah to the south, its capital is Jerusalem. And again, the story can be hard to follow because there are names that are a little foreign to us. Uh, This is not the kind of material we typically use or read for our devotional life, though we could. These are stories that alternate between the two parts of the divided kingdom, sometimes tracking events uh, in the ten tribes to the north, but then shifting back our focus to the two tribes in the south. It's helpful to remember at this point that the story ends with the ten tribes in the north being dissolved and distributed, never to be reconstituted. And the two southern nations will hang on just a little longer, but they will also be brought into exile, then ultimately or later restored. 
And you start to know, and, and, we, and hopefully you do know, but some of you for, this, uh, for some of you this might be entirely new, the reason the northern tribes are dissolved, the reasons the southern tribes go into exile, is for the same basic reason the people abandoned the Lord. They worshipped other gods. Even though the Lord God, Yahweh, had said to them, having delivered them in a mighty way from their slavery in Egypt, having promised to their forefather Abraham and renewed that promise to subsequent generations that he would be their God, they would be his people, and that he alone was worth their worship. That he would lead them into a land, they would, he would assist them in driving out all the other nations with all their other gods, and he would demonstrate his vast superiority over all other gods to be the only God, and he would warn them and say, worship me alone. If you worship those other gods, I'll send you to those other nations. Well, without a little bit of a background, and again, since we've been away for a while, there's still a little more to see. We are introduced in verse 1 to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. But notice he's now in the 18th year of his reign. And if you're saying to yourself, I think I've heard that name before... We met him back in 1 Kings chapter 15. That's a long time ago. Nothing is said of him again from chapter 15 to chapter 22. Because the attention of the writer uh, directs us to events going on in the north. So we know Jehoshaphat is crown king. Storyline shifts to the north. And we have this series of kings in the north, a succession of kings who reigned in Israel at roughly the same time, the last of which is Ahab, who we remember is that king who reigns during the life of Elijah. Jehoshaphat, we're told in chapter 15, became king upon the death of his father Asa. The story goes entirely north, and now finally we come back. In verse, uh, sorry, chapter 22, uh, the last chapter of 1 Kings, Jehoshaphat shows up again. And it's interesting because 1 Kings 22 and 2 Kings 3 are echoes, telling a virtually the same story in a different season. When Asa died and Jehoshaphat began to reign, it was the fourth year of Ahab's reign. And largely through his diplomatic skills, Jehoshaphat had brought peace or some kind of union or some kind of a settled agreement with the land of Israel. So Jehoshaphat ruling in the south this brings some kind of negotiations, involves a marriage uh, with Ahab's family. And Jehoshaphat's reign is largely expressed in positive terms. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And if you want to hear more about Jehoshaphat and how great his reign was and what kinds of things he accomplished, he gets four chapters in 2 Chronicles devoted to him. And yet we're told here he did not take away all the high places or he still permitted some pockets of false worship in the land. And again in 1 Kings 22, we're told of his alliance with Ahab in a way that sounds like our story today. Ahab wants him to join in a battle to reclaim some land that has been taken over by the Syrians. They have been encroaching on, and remember King David had expanded the borders, Edom's pushing back, and Ahab says, I want that land back. And he goes to Jehoshaphat and says, help me out. Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22 says this, 
I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. Sounds familiar. But back then, before he agreed to join Ahab on the battlefield, he insisted they consult a prophet of the Lord to see whether or not they should go up. And Ahab went big, and he brought in 400 prophets, and we later learn that they had been permitted by Yahweh to be filled with deceptive, lying spirits, and they go and they pump up Ahab's tires, and they prophesy with misdirection and misinformation. They encourage him to go up. They guarantee him the victory. Jehoshaphat wasn't persuaded. He said, hmm, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh here? And so we meet the prophet Micaiah, who really only appears in that episode. He predicts both the defeat and the death of Ahab. And he said he saw Israel scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And sure enough, Jehoshaphat and Ahab go up to battle. Jehoshaphat's life is spared in a kind of uh, miraculous moment. And then this certain archer takes a random shot, and his arrow finds a small crack in Saul's or rather Ahab's armor, and he dies. His blood leaks all over the floor of his chariot. It's hosed out and licked up by the dogs in Samaria. And we'll hear more about that another day. Ahab's son, Ahaziah, reigns for just over a year, really, dies because he falls off the roof of the palace. And because he has no sons, his brother, also the son of his father, Ahab, reigns in his place. His brother's name is Jehoram. And now you're all caught up. Jehoram shows up in this chapter. Now, all that's not going to be on a quiz, but it's helpful to have some sense of perspective. The story's moving along, and if you are an Israelite in exile or in a post-exilic world, and you're reading this story or hearing this again, you're thinking to myself, I've heard this before. And I think I can start to understand, when I put all this together, why we're in exile or why we were in exile or what we should or shouldn't be doing to avoid that kind of treatment again. Jehoshaphat now, in 2 Kings 3, is a seasoned king. He's in his 18th year. He has seen kings in Israel come and go. And we're quickly introduced to this sense of contrast. Jehoshaphat does what is right in the sight of the Lord, and Jehoram follows in the footsteps of his father Ahab. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it's never quite that simple because you start to realize uh, Jehoram, on the plus side, puts away the pillars of Baal, or at least the pillar of Baal his father made. Now, that will show up again later in the story because he apparently doesn't destroy it. He just puts it in storage, maybe long-term storage for a bit. But all in all, to sum up his reign, as the writer does here, we are told uh, Jehoram hits that low-level benchmark of all evil kings in Israel, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from him. So Jehoram, not exactly one of the good guys. And so with that, all in the background, we finally get to the main episode in our chapter. Both Israel and Judah are a long way away from the days of King David and Solomon. 
Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we told, we're told King David had defeated the Moabites, descendants of Lot, you remember. And in the retelling of the story in Chronicles, we're told David demanded, as he did from all of the countries he defeated, he demanded a tribute from them. And all the nation's wealth poured into Israel to the profit of God's people. So much of that is used in the building of the temple and in so many other ways. The country prospers under David is magnified for its glory under Solomon. And the nations keep bringing in their tribute, sheep and wool in this case. But as great as David had been in expanding the kingdom... We have this little crack because we read that Solomon, who had all his foreign wives, attempted to accommodate them, built places of worship, altars and shrines around the hills of Jerusalem for his wives, including a high place or an altar, a shrine for Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Now again, fast forward to Ahab. He dies during his brief reign, his son Uh, Ahaziah, somewhere along the way, Misha, the king of the Moabites, says, that's it. I've had enough. He sees the period of transition between kings as a moment of weakness. A moment of weakness he's happy to take advantage of. He's willing to test. He decides he'd rather keep his sheep and his wool for himself. He's not going to send it to Israel. And by the time uh, Jehoram gets to the throne, it becomes obvious to him the the tap has been shut off for uh, sheep and wool from Moab, and he decides to do something about it. So he musters his troops, he takes advantage of the peace Jehoshaphat has, has gained or established with his father, and he picks up the phone. Well, he didn't pick up the phone. But notice again, there are all kinds of echoes with 1 Kings 22. Jehoshaphat says to Jehoram what he has said to Ahab, I am as you are. In other words, Jehoshaphat is going to honor the the settled peace he has established with Ahab. And he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. We're all in this together. This time... Unlike that previous episode, there's no consultation with a prophet of the Lord. And off they go, and they travel through Edom, and there's some uh, strategic reasons for that, to come and uh, take Moab from the back, uh, weaker side. But they're joined along the way with the king of Edom, which just seems striking in its own way, except Edom has a kind of relationship with Judah uh, that Moab had with Israel, it, it's indebted to them, brings tribute to them. And they march for seven days and they run out of water. They run out of water for themselves. They run out of water for the animals they brought along for food and the animals they brought along apparently for some kind of sacrifices. And Jehoram, king of Israel, does what the wilderness generation of the Israelites before him does, uh, did. He grumbles and he blames the Lord. Verse 10. We three kings, the Lord brought us out into the wilderness only to be killed or fall into the hands of Moab. We're going to either die of thirst or we're going to be so weakened by thirst we are sitting ducks. And finally, in case of emergency, break glass. 
Jehoshaphat has the sense to ask for a prophet of Yahweh to come. And lo and behold, Elisha is in the neighborhood. Elisha, notice, is described in terms of his prior relationship to Elijah. He has the, he's the one who poured water on his hands. Uh, Jehoshaphat is confident the word of Yahweh is with him. He has some knowledge of Elisha. And for his part, Elisha has little regard for Jehoram, son of Ahab, and he uses language he had used when he confronted Ahab about the drought during his era. He is so dismissive of him, it gives, him a, uh, gives you some sense of how far Ahab and his family have fallen that they want to finally hear from a prophet of the Lord. And the prophet of the Lord says, I have nothing to do with you. I don't even see you. And you can tell there's a history here. You know that Elisha knows the story of the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, whereas here there's a water problem. And he says, go to the prophets of your father, Ahab. Go to the prophets of your mother, Jezebel. And after one more protest by Jehoram, who again blames Yahweh, it turns out Jehoshaphat is the only reason Elisha will give them an audience. He asks for the musician and then he gives this incredibly, uh, incredibly positive two-part prediction. The Lord will give water. It's an easy thing for the Lord to do. But what's more, he would give them victory over Moab. And notice Jehoram will participate, even though, he's, even though he's dismissed by the prophet, he will participate in the blessings of water and in the victory over Moab because of his, his connection to his union with, you might say, the son of David. And then the story moves toward this resolution. Remarkably, uh, remarkably in the morning, the earth is full of water. And it's a scene that evokes images of the Exodus where Moses, uh, God, through Moses and Aaron, had turned the water into blood. But here the reflection of the early morning sun on the water makes the Moabites look at that water and think it's blood, and they make this connection. They assume the three nations who really uh, shouldn't have had all kinds of reasons to be aligned and uh, had, had Israel, Judah, Edom had this falling out that they were all lined up to, uh, to fight against Moab, and somewhere along the way they'd come into some kind of disagreement, and they killed each other, and it's their blood all over the land. And now all that belongs to Moab to do is to go in, mop up, clean up, take up all the spoil. Of course, they are wrong. The Lord's miracle of providing water is also going to be the means by which he accomplishes this great victory over Moab. The route is on. The Moabites are defeated. Their land is laid waste. They're chased back to their royal city where they try one last-ditch effort at victory, or rather two last-ditch efforts. First, they try to break through what they assume is the weakest spot, Edom, and they fail. And then we get to this most strange and disturbing last verse. Misha, the king of the Moabites, as an act of ultimate 
desperation, it seems, takes his oldest son, the heir apparent, and on the wall in the sight of all offers him up as a burnt offering to their God. Perhaps the smell of my roasting oldest child will appease or wake up our God to deliver us. And then we read, there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now here's a verse that has confounded every commentator I've ever consulted. So if that seems strange to you, and you have a bunch of questions like, who is the source of the wrath? Why is it directed only toward the Israelites? What's the connection to the human sacrifice, if there is any? And why then does it seem like the victory promised by Elisha is not the total victory he seems to have prophesied? Well, I can say to you, there are some options. Ordinarily, when we see the word that's translated as wrath here, it's divine wrath. It comes from God or a God. So this could be not the wrath against Israel, but Israel's own wrath, its own anger or disgust at what has just happened and they leave. At least that's one proposal. Or perhaps it is God's wrath against Israel because it was their quest for this war to reclaim this property that resulted in this child sacrifice. So in other words, God's mad or wrathful at Israel. Or possibly the Moabites were incited to wrath by the sight of what that sacrifice meant for them and now were re-energized in their battle against the Israelites and chased them off. And possibly, as a fourth option, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, was appeased by the sacrifice and directly or indirectly through the Moabites showed his wrath and chased off the Israelites, thereby not granting them complete victory. Now, I gave this a good deal of thought, and I read far more than I probably should have about this question or these questions. And I've come to this conclusion, and I'll give you just a little illustration to help you out. Some of you know I spent my last vacation reading a whole bunch of novels. Some of those were in a series by the same author, and they followed the life and exploits of the same character, and uh, the plot in each book was different, but some of the people and even some of the places were the same. Each book ended with some satisfactory resolution of the main plot in the story, but on that last page, there were just enough loose ends that made you want to say, I need to read uh, the next book in the series. Just a few little niggling loose ends. 2 Kings 3 seems to be like that. Not only is it impossible to find any Old Testament scholars to agree on what is going on in the last verse, but when that happens, I'm inclined to say, what if God didn't really want us to know all that he could have said. He could have very easily said he was wrathful against the Israelites because they, and he could, or he could have given any one of those answers and fleshed it out a little bit more. What if the answer is simply, 
that were to read this story to the end and puzzle. What if the story is meant to leave us pondering and wondering? Were the Israelites so angry by watching this child human sacrifice that they left that last stronghold and returned home? Is it their wrath? Maybe some of them, but they have their own history of sacrificing or will have their own history of sacrificing children. What if we're meant to ask this question, is the God of the Moabites appeased by the sacrifice of the king's firstborn son and so grant victory over his people or for his people over this other nation who follows a different God? That question is apparently real enough for the Israelites that throughout their history, they are going to follow other gods. We are enticed to keep reading. And for those of us who have kept reading, we know the answer to that question. Clearly, Yahweh is the only God. Not just more powerful than the other gods, but all-powerful. And we can say with absolute confidence that we know how this story is going to go. That there will be a firstborn son who will be sacrificed in the sight of all. A God who will... Uh, who, a son of God, a son of David, who will lay down his life for his people, who will be the good shepherd, who will gather the scattered sheep, who will die and appease the Father's wrath, satisfying the Father's wrath for sins of people, even like we are who sometimes don't give God a lot of thought until there's some sense of emergency in our lives. Jesus will do that. For us. And Jesus will lead us to an ultimate victory. What if this puzzling verse makes us ponder, makes us come back next week to hear what else God will do in this story, and to know that Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, has come in His Son, who gives us water, gives us life, gives us peace, gives us rest, gives us victory over sin, gives us victory over Satan, who vanquishes lying spirits, who demonstrates his superiority over all other gods, and takes us to be with himself in an eternal kingdom that will never end in his glorious, powerful presence. What if? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we're drawn back to see our Savior. We delight in these stories that have otherwise seemed so obscure and have such strange detail, detail to them and provide even disturbing and troubling accounts. And then we come to recognize that your Son was sacrificed for our salvation. We marvel at your plan of salvation at the way it has trickled out over the ages, at examples of bad kings and good kings and always directing us to our great king. How we thank you for the power of your word, the promise that you are present and that you speak to us. Thank you for the scriptures 
And we thank you for your spirit. Lord, grant us the ability to ponder and wonder. Grant to us deep and abiding answers where your truth is obvious and evident. Make us sure of the clear things you teach us. Grant us a bit of humility where it's difficult for us to comprehend. But always remind us of what is good and right and true. We will believe it and we will follow you to the end of the ages in your Son and our Savior. We call on him to come and to come quickly. Hear us, we ask, in his name and all God's people say together, Amen.